Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, supply chain woes. Even with opposition from environmentalists, labor, and scientists, the federal government gives the go-ahead to a major port expansion in Vancouver. We look at the fight ahead. Plus, students and parents continue their campaign to save Vancouver's ideal middle school. We'll have the latest. And in the biggest crackdown since sports betting became legal, the NFL suspends five players for sports gambling. Should we expect to see more cases? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on Vancouver's ideal mini school. Now, over the past couple of days, parents and students have rallied and attempted to speak to Vancouver school trustees and administrative staff to stop the program's planned relocation to a significantly larger school. Now, the ideal mini school has run for nearly 50 years uh, in the Vancouver School District. It's a space for kids who have higher learning needs, experience uh, social anxiety, or neurodiverse, and it does not require families to be living in its catchment area. The school has around 100 students or so. Now, recently, parents and uh, students were told that the school will be relocated next year to Churchill Secondary, a school with over 2,000 students. Now, parents and alumni feel the loss of the ideal mini-school will be a major setback for kids who have trouble functioning within the mainstream uh, school system. Joining me now to talk about the last couple of days and uh, the attempts by uh, parents and students to talk to uh, school administrators is Jen Yugawa. She's the PAC chair of the ideal mini school. Jen, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Hi. Uh, walk me through what the last couple of days have been like for yourself uh, and other parents uh, and let us know what you've been trying or attempting to do in regards to uh, a conversation and conversing with administrators and trustees. Absolutely. Um, the first thing though, I, that I just want to go back to your introduction just mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, our main concern um, that's emerged over the past nine days since the school board announced this proposed move Mm -hmm. is the mental health and well-being of the kids that go to this school. And part of it, um, what a lot of them are struggling with right now is um, the portrayal of them as, um, you know, uh, they're, they're worried that it's not a full picture of the kids that go to ideal. Mm-hmm. There certainly are neurodiverse kids there. There's neurodiverse kids everywhere. Um, there's kids with higher learning needs everywhere throughout the school district. Mm-hmm. At, at Ideal Mini, there's also super strong academic kids. There are kids that come to this school for the enriched, not accelerated, but enriched programming that there's offered. The leadership focus, the community focus, mm-hmm. that's all super high priority. And the reason why Ideal works in this really small environment is because all of these kids, whatever their needs are, whether they need the enrichment, whether they want to be leaders, whether they need a little bit of extra attention for some neurodiverse uh, conditions, they work together in these tiny little teams in these small classrooms. They all become friends. That doesn't happen in the big high schools. They work in teams. They work together. They help each other. And it's really this super strong community that happens in this small school. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to address that because their mental health has really been damaged by this sudden decision. All of them, no matter which category, if you want to categorize the kids, Mm -hmm. they fall into whether they're the strong leaders or the ones that came because they are intimidated by a bigger school. It doesn't matter. All of these kids are suffering from this decision. So I just wanted to 
No, and I appreciate that. And I know the students and parents uh, in the last couple of days have been out at at some meetings. Walk me through um, what you're seeing and hearing. Absolutely. So there's been um, there's been two meetings with the Vancouver School Board staff. um, And you're exactly right to call them meetings because the staff themselves were very clear that they were not consultations. These were information meetings, which we fundamentally disagree with. They should have been consultations. But And then there was a rally at the school board, which was a bigger issue about no cuts, no closures, all that sort of stuff. So uh, there were two meetings. The first one was only with the kids. And I'm going to talk about that one in a second. Uh, first, I want to talk about the meeting that we had last night um, with the between the VSB staff and administration and just the parents. Um, it, it started out with the school board staff telling us very clearly that this was not a consultation. This was a meeting because, again, they're using their labels. They're calling it an operational issue, which they say means does not require consultation. It does not require any input from the school board trustees. And because it's operational, they can just do what they want. And they were just there to tell us what they were going to do. Did it However, come across as a tick the uh, tick the box exercise for you? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it was a tick the box exercise. Um, they were there apparently to tell us what they were going to do, but they have no plan. That's what came out in the meeting was they don't know what they're going to do. They have no plan. They just keep saying, "Oh, we're confident that we think we can fit you into this building, the Churchill Building." Um, it was. It was mind-blowing, really. The parents were so upset. The The tone of the meeting was terribly condescending. And it just came out over and over again. There's no plan. There's no plan. There's no plan. One trustee, um, trustee Preeti Ferrycoat, she came to the meeting. We didn't, um, a parent invited her. And uh, I think that there's starting to be more concern from the trustee side as to what they're not being told. And so they are making the effort to come and see these meetings for themselves. So um, it it just came out over and over and over again. There is no plan. So we don't have a lot of time. We've got about 90 seconds here. What happens next moving forward? I know last couple of days, um, you know, the tense conversations, frustration on the part of parents and students. What happens moving forward? Have you had this meeting now and the school board still plans to move forward? No other, no other well, sort of yeah. consultation? So, yeah, we've had this meeting. We're meet, continuing to communicate with trustees. I just want to touch really quickly mm-hmm. on the meeting they had with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not notify the parents. There were no parents in the room. Kids were extremely upset. They were crying. Apparently, the school board staff, one of them was sitting in front of these crying children um, eating an apple just showing that they had a complete disregard for the level of um, harm to the mental health of these kids that this sudden decision has put upon them. And we're really, really asking for the trustees to step in and ask the staff to pause this decision and make a proper plan for the success of this program. There is no plan, and it's not just us. It's, it's us, Churchill, and Laurier. All of those school communities need to be consulted properly. Mm -hmm. They need to pause and they need to plan for the success 
of this decision. And is there any plan forward for the parents here in regards to speaking at the next school board meeting or their attempts to to meet with school trustees? Yeah, we're speaking. um, There's several delegations planned at the next uh, school board meeting, the public delegation meeting next Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Um, And the following day, the Thursday, the 27th, several trustees have um, agreed to come and tour the ideal school to meet the kids and and just kind of see what all the fuss is about. Mm -hmm. So we're actually really encouraged by the increased um, communication and interaction directly with the trustees. It really gives us the impression that they disagree um, with the school board staff that um, is trying to exclude them from this process. Jen, thank you for your time to run out, but uh, look forward to chatting with you on this next week. I know this this is a huge issue for yourself, parents and students at Ideal Mini School, and we'll stay on top of it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jazz. We talked a lot about Roberts Bank and the approval by the federal government to essentially double the port's uh, current footprint. It would uh, basically, there would be a 50% increase in the capacity of the port out in Tawasson. A significant announcement uh, that took over 10 years um, in regards to planning, in regards to consultation. It did come with 370 legally binding conditions to protect the environment. However, many environmental groups, labor organizations, scientists, and First Nations communities remain concerned uh, with that project and the approval of that project. Joining me now is Rob Ashton, President of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Mr. Ashton, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me. Eh? Uh, first and foremost, uh, your reaction to yesterday's announcement. Do you view this as a good news story or there's a tremendous amount of concern for you and your members? No, this, this announcement still has a tremendous amount of concern for us. Um, even with the 370 recommendations by, put in by the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really worried about the, the impacts of the environment that this terminal will have, but I have yet to see one of those 370 uh, recommendations have anything to do with mitigating the loss of workers' uh, workers' jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- now, one assumes with the growth of a port, there would be, forget the construction jobs, which would be significant but temporary. Uh, it, it, you don't expect a lot of jobs out of this at the end of it? No, we don't. We actually are we're expecting job losses. So the Port of Vancouver, Robin Silvestri, sent me a letter on a Sunday uh, 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 offering me the 800 uh, allegedly full-time jobs at the port if we flip sides and agreed with their position on the Terminal 2 project. But those 800 jobs only equal out to 39 weeks of work, and nowhere I know of it w- is that full-time work. But the worst, the biggest problem with this whole pro- this whole project is once they once they start to build, or maybe mm-hmm. even sooner than that, uh, it's going to force the current terminals that we have in place that, for the most part, are conventional. And there's some automation, mm-hmm. uh, but that was negotiated between the union and the, and the employer. That's going to force them to automate more. And so we did a study in 2019, uh, we call the PRISM report, that talked about job losses when brownfield sites, which are current terminals, uh, go from conventional to automated. We could lose up to 50% of our workforce. Mm. 
So this just new, to keep up, just to keep up. So just the the new uh, the, with the approval of this one, if it is built, it is predominantly it's going to be all automated. So very little uh, work, as you say, for your members. Could you see all that work then being transferred to that new location and whittling away of the present locations, or at the very least, forcing the other ones, as you say, to to automate even more? Well, the Port of Vancouver. It, every piece of paper that they've ever given us said that all horizontal equipment will be automated, which means just about every piece of equipment on the site. Uh, but that it doesn't end there because as a caveat to that, they said they state in their paperwork that uh, the terminal operator, whoever they may be, has final say on the level of automation. So the automation can be even worse. It could mean even less jobs for our people. Now they expect another 2 million TEU to come out of nowhere to fill that terminal and they're saying that it's not going to steal from any of the current terminals but what we're seeing is a lot of the boxes going around uh going around to the uh, panama canal going to the east coast and so there's not a lot of play there right now and so our fear is, is that they start stealing containers from our current terminals definitely and so you're, what you're saying here is that the West Coast terminals in the Canada and the U.S. Uh, are not seeing some dramatic increase. There isn't some huge need that that uh, the, the 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 containers are instead being, I guess, offloaded in Mexico and another and uh, in the East Coast. Yeah, they're going to they're going to the southeast of the United States. Why is that? You is know, it just but, cheaper? Is it what is the reasoning for that? It's just the way the carriers are going now, you know, but. You know, the thing of it is, is when we look at the when we look at the transportation hub across Canada, it's not we just can't look at the container terminals. So yeah, they could build this terminal, bring in two million TEUs, but all they're going to do is put two million more problems onto an already fractured supply chain in Canada. We the problem that we have right now is that we can't get empty rail cars to our terminals right now, load them up, and get the containers off dock. A container should sit maximum three days at a terminal. But we're looking at uh, uh, containers that are sitting there for five to seven days, some even longer than that. And that's the big problem here. So the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority is only worried about building this terminal, but they're not worried about fixing the rest of the supply chain. So, and that's a huge problem. So I just want to. So when you say TEUs, those are twenty foot equivalent uh, containers. But where do we need to go yeah. from this? Then you're saying it doesn't need to be built for environmental reasons. There isn't a demand for it per se, just in regards to our supply chain. Canada is growing. Asia continues to grow. I'm just trying to wrap my head around the fact that are you saying we don't need any port expansion whatsoever at this point? No. No, I'm not saying that, uh, and that's a heck of a good question, because right now, uh, our, our initial position was the government of Canada should not approve T2, because right now we've got an, an expansion project at uh, Delta, Port, Delta Port GCT's terminal. We've got an expansion project, plus a brand-new terminal that's proposed up in Prince Rupert, mm-hmm. and we've got a proposed terminal that they want to build at Duke Point in Nanaimo. So our position was, don't just approve the flashy one, Wait till all the projects catch up to each other and then make the decision for what's of the best interest for Canadians, the environment, and the working class. Mm -hmm. But the Canadian government jumped the gun and said, no, no, this is the one. And so what does that do? That, to me, I think that sends a message to private and industry that they don't have to spend money in this country anymore. Because if they wait out the government, the government will just build it. And how are they going to build this terminal is by raising the rent to their current tenants to pay for a competitor's site.
Rob, thank you for your time today. We've run out. Look forward to chatting with you very soon on this issue. It's not going away. It's a big one, and I appreciate you making time for us today. Thanks so much. Anytime. My pleasure. Have a good day. This week, we learned that the federal government plans to provide, well, $13 billion. I'll say that again, $13 billion in subsidies over the next decade or so to see Volkswagen build its first overseas battery manufacturing plant in southwestern Ontario. Uh, the initial capital investment on behalf of, not the government, I'm going to say it, taxpayers, is $700 million, uh, and then it goes up from there, uh, in ongoing production subsidies up to $13 billion. Now, we all know uh, the car industry, like many other uh, industries, going through a technical disruption, significant uh, um, change. Uh, the electric vehicle industry is growing significantly. There's been past studies say that the v- EV industry here alone uh, in uh, in Canada could be a $48 billion industry when you think about the manufacture of these vehicles uh, to the um, EVs themselves, to the extraction of minerals that are required for these batteries uh, is significant. Uh, Flavio Volpe, who is the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, upon hearing of this subsidy, comment on, commented on um, uh, the, the story. Take a listen. This company is going to make a million batteries a year. They're $25,000 each. There is a $200 billion output that comes from this investment. And the money from the feds does not flow up front. It flows in part after every year. You make the batteries. You've employed the people. We see the factory. Do your filings this year. Oh, you qualify for X amount. This is when you get it. And so it's not a cash on the barrel uh, deal like when we bailed out GM and Chrysler uh, who needed emergency cash flow in 2009. And that was a great deal. We needed to save the sector then. This is a pretty big carrot, but it's for the most advanced product for the biggest car company in the world. And I love it. Joining me to talk about uh, this announcement and my (laughs) concern, which is why can't BC get some of the subsidy money, number one, and can we build at least, can we be part of this broad EV uh, revolution that is uh, occurring before us. Uh, Jeremy Cato is an automotive journalist behind CatoCarGuy.com and he joins us now. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Hi, Jazz. Hi. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on this uh, $13 billion over a decade, $700 million in initial uh, capital investment from taxpayers, then it, it goes on and on from there. Uh, is this a good thing in your mind? Uh, I think it's the way the industry works globally, um, but that's not really answering your question. Uh, it, it's a good thing because we don't have any choice in Canada if we want to have an auto industry uh, and, and the jobs that come from it. And they're, and they're good middle-class jobs that, that pay high wages, um, the kind of wages that if you're in southern Ontario where this battery plant is going to be built, you can probably raise a family on the salary of one worker in this plant. Um, so, and, and this is going to be a hub for a number of other uh, uh, productions, uh, production facilities. And so I would expect uh, more jobs to flow more. At least that's the hope. But I do want to just make one thing. Uh, when I heard the number $13 billion, mm-hmm. uh, Flavio Volpe in your clip uh, mentioned it. What is with $13 billion? Because, yes, that was exactly the amount taxpayers in Canada paid to keep General Motors and Chrysler alive back in 2009. There must be something magic about $13 billion. <laughs> Well, in the case of Ontario, it's lucky number 13, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, keep in mind, too, that 
Um, this isn't the only subsidy we're, we're doing in Canada for battery plants. There's another $5 billion on the table to help out Stellantis, um, which used to be Chrysler, which we as taxpayers rescued back in 2009, and, and that's going to be a battery plant in Windsor. So this seems to be a bit of a trend. Um, and I mentioned that this is the way the industry goes. We, clearly, this government and a lot of people in Ontario and Quebec don't want to see us turn out to be Australia, which once had also a thriving manufacturing industry. Mm. Um, and in, in less than a decade, GM, through its Holden subsidiary, Mitsubishi, Toyota, Ford, they all left forever because the Australian government wasn't willing to subsidize. So does BC have any chance uh, to get mm. a cut of uh, this industry? What I mean by that, it, you know, you've got the mining side, you've got the, the batteries themselves, you've got the manufacturer of, of, of these vehicles, and it is a, a different process now in, instead of an internal combustion engine. Can we you know, get a piece of the pie here in regards to this, uh, this, uh, this change and this revolution that's occurring in the automotive industry? Uh, I think we have a chance, um, because of things that happened a couple of decades ago, to have a piece of the hydrogen side of it. Um, you know, if you've been following uh, what's going on in in the whole greening of industry, um, in Canada, our federal government uh, struck, struck a deal with Germany to provide hydrogen coming out of uh, Newfoundland. Um, and we have a hydrogen hub here, which dates back to way back into the late 90s and early 2000s, when, when uh, a number of automakers, Daimler, Ford, and of course Ballard Power Systems, were on the cutting edge of hydrogen fuel cell technology. And that has a, is a technology that hasn't completely disappeared. And there is some expertise in that hub, especially around um, the, the marine drive area on the on the border with the Vancouver and Burnaby. Mm-hmm. So I think if we um, if we had a government that was a, a little bit more forward thinking, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. um, there would be an opportunity to take advantage of the expertise that we have right in that hub because th- th- there are still companies down there doing hydrogen work. Yeah, it, it, I, I just see the numbers being thrown out when you look at Ontario. Uh, you even look at overseas, uh, you know, Chinese manufacturers uh, yep. b- building and, and uh, manufacturing their own vehicles and then trying to sell or try to penetrate the North American market in Europe. Uh, so many different car companies that I've never heard of all trying to enter the North American and European market. And I sort of say, well, where does Vancouver and British Columbia fit in all of this? And it's great for the resources and hydrogen, as you say. I'd love to see a factory of some sort, perhaps not in Vancouver because of land costs, but you couldn't put one in Kamloops or Kelowna or other parts of British Columbia. You know, is there any chance we can, any assembly line type of investment you think, or is, is, or is that just not what we do? That's not what we do. And, and, and the reason is pretty simple is the auto industry is, is supply chain driven and you need to be in proximity to the other pieces of that supply chain. And we're just not there. We're, we're just too far away. So these investments go to Southern Ontario, um, some parts of uh, Quebec, uh, because they all go in, they funnel basically into the United States going into Michigan and then South into some of the, the U S Southern States. And we're just too far away from it. Mm-hmm. But if we were smart, if we had a smart process here, we would look at the places where we can do bring value added expertise along the lines of what you see in other industries for you know for example some of the high tech companies like microsoft and google have large facilities here with a lot of well paid digital tech workers 
um, you know, th- we're talking thousands of jobs here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think uh, we are better off looking for uh, ways to maximize our intellectual property here rather than factory jobs. Jeremy, thank you. My pleasure. Let's revisit uh, one of our top stories today. As you uh, learned yesterday, the federal government approved the Port of Vancouver's proposal to build a second container ship terminal at the mouth of the Fraser River. It'll be built um, uh, in Tawas at the Roberts Bank uh, Terminal. The the project is called the Roberts Bank Terminal 2 project. It will increase uh, the port's capacity by 50% and double the port's current footprint as well. Uh, Critics have said it'll destroy 177 uh, hectares um, uh, of an estuary where there are more than 100 species already at risk uh, to local extinction. extinction. Uh, the project itself is subject to 370 legally binding conditions to protect the environment. We did speak to Robin Sylvester, the president and CEO of the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority yesterday once this announcement came um, in the afternoon. Take a listen. Well, this is a really significant milestone. As you, as you said in your introduction, this is a, it's a project that's been going through environmental assessment process for a long time, in fact, nearly 10 years. It's been going through the federal environmental assessment process, the most robust environmental assessment process in Canada. And it's a really key milestone for the project to get the positive decision from the federal government today, allowing the project to move forward. And it, it's significant for the region. I mean, it's going to mean moving forward towards construction, creating 18,000 construction jobs. And more than that, once the project's operation, 17,000 good-paying supply chain-related jobs in the region that are going to last into the long term. That is Robin Sylvester, President and CEO of the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. He spoke to us yesterday as this story broke. There is, uh, needless to say, a significant amount of opposition to this project, uh, environmental opposition, um, the scientific community, uh, labour groups as well, as we uh, heard at the 3 o'clock hour. Joining me now is Roger Emsley is the executive director of the Against Port Expansion Community Group. Uh, Roger, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm uh, very pleased that uh, you invited me to discuss this devastating project. Why don't you like it? Well, first of all, I'm disgusted and angry, um, but very angry. Mm-hmm. Why don't I like it? Mm-hmm. Two reasons. First of all, This project was approved on two falsehoods. Um, Minister Alcabra yesterday said uh, the assessment was a robust science-based assessment, Mm -hmm. yet the decision ignored the government scientists. What the government scientists said was the decision and those conditions that uh, you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that's 180 degrees from the government science advice, and the situation is irretrievable. Mm-hmm. What Environment Canada scientists now expect is the practical extinction of the entire Western sandpiper species. Uh, the federal government was fully briefed by their science, and they ignored it. Mm-hmm. That's the first falsehood. The second falsehood You've heard it a number of times from uh, CEO Sylvester, but again, it was repeated yesterday by the transport minister, that being that Vancouver will run out of container terminal capacity by the late 2020s. -hmm. Simply not true. If you look at the 
first quarter of 2023, container volumes are down by 15.3% compared to 2022. Mm-hmm. If you look at last year, container volumes were down on the, based on the year before that. In fact, full container loads, because this port also handles a heck of a lot of empty containers, and we see these stacked all over the lower mainland. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the full container loads, last year, this port handled about 2.5 million full containers. It handled more than that 10 years ago in 2013. So this is, a, let's, let's deal with the secondary issue, first of all, in regards to the container capacity. This, in your mind, is a longer-term trend decline because of the trends in the shipping industry in in your mind some have said look this is the west coast of the united states is dealing with this as well in many cases uh, they're using the panama canal because it was widened many years ago now uh, and they're using uh, i guess the eastern seaboard in in the u.s yes i mean it, there are a number of factors first of all and um, perhaps what the listeners don't realize is this port handles a significant percentage of U.S. containers. Adds nothing to the Canadian economy, um, but they handle, and it it has been as high as 25%. Now, what is happening, as you indicated, there's more and more containers are now going via the Panama to Gulf and East Coast ports. Mm -hmm. But there's more to it than that. Um, China, with its Belt uh, Road and Rail project Mm -hmm. is starting to invest in Mexico. They're building warehouses uh, and logistics infrastructure in Mexico. They have at least one, and I think it may even be perhaps two, they own and operate two container terminals in Mexico. So what we're going to be seeing more and more is containers that used to go via Vancouver, will skip the West Coast. Some will perhaps, and certainly the Chinese, perhaps will go to uh, the Mexican ports. And more and more, we're going to see that West Coast traffic disappear uh, and go through the Panama to Gulf and East Coast ports. Mr. Elmsley, what do you say to the argument that, look, um, this is the trend today and now? Trends can ebb and flow. Uh, This may be a long-term trend, as you're saying, uh, but it can come back as well. But ultimately, we are a growing nation, number one. North America continues to grow. 60% of humanity lives in Asia. Um, We we still are heavily reliant and connected to uh, our supply supply chains connected to to, to Asia, not just China, but uh, Japan and Korea and perhaps India and many other nations like Indonesia and in Southeast Asia. That ultimately, that ultimately, we still have to have a robust port system and a, continu- a port system that has to grow, especially where we are geographically located, that whatever the, the, the declines are today and now and maybe for the next 10 or 15 years, they can come back and they can reverse as well. What do you say to that argument that we still need to move forward because of that reason? We do and will eventually need to for- move forward, but you don't do it by destroying the West Coast's most important ecosystem – what you do and what private investment is trying to do is to look at alternative locations. And the prime location is Prince Rupert. Prince Rupert has one container terminal now operated 
i.e. Dubai Ports World. They are expanding that container terminal and they have recently announced that they plan to build a second container terminal. We'll start off with perhaps a 2 million additional containers. It can go as high as 5 million. Now, Rupert is two sailing days closer to Asia, doesn't have the environmental issues which are well known and recognized in uh, the Fraser Estuary, has an easier run across the Rockies because the majority of what Vancouver handles goes east, either eastern Canada and or eastern United States. Mm -hmm. The federal government in 2008 had three experts do a thorough analysis of port and port capacities on the West Coast. Their number one recommendation, expand Prince Rupert to its maximum potential before you do any further expansion in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And this government is ignoring that. It's ignoring the scientists, and it's going to mean the elimination, the extinction of a number of species, orcas, Southern resident killer whales, for starters, western sandpipers, and others. Mr. Emsley, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to chatting with you on this issue in the future because it is not going to be going away anytime soon. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye. Well, on April 4th, uh, football fans and even uh, non-football fans were were shocked to learn about uh, SFU announcing that they were shutting down their uh, well-regarded and famous football program. You don't have to be a sports fan to know SFU has been home to football for a very, very long time. Now, at that time, um, the administration said that the decision was not financially motivated. um, And there was talk about, of course, SFU joining another conference. And they said that was very complex. Uh, Since then, players and alumni have uh, been working really hard to find a solution to the program uh, not being shut down. Uh, Of course, SFU made the move to NCAA Division II in 2010, uh, and it has been a challenging time since that move. Uh, But uh, there has been not much clarity in regards to why the program itself had to be shut down. Many have said, look, if you're not going to play Division II or or one of the other conferences in in the United States, you can always go back to the Canadian League here as well, which is always and has been robust for a very long time. Joining me now is Glenn Orris. He's a lawyer and director and former president of the Simon Fraser Football Alumni Society. Mr. Orris, thank you for joining us today. Yes, if I can call you that, you're welcome. <laughs> of course you can. And now, I know uh, you um, met with uh, administration, including SFU president, uh, just recently. I believe that was yesterday. Can you give me a sense of what you learned from that conversation? Well, it wasn't so much of what uh, we learned. Uh, it was uh, more the information we were giving to them. Mm-hmm. And what uh, did you tell them? They had, well, they, we told them that... Uh, you know that the 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 team itself was stable, and they were prepared to go back into uh, to be reinstated. We hadn't lost any players, we hadn't lost any coaches. They were all ready to be reinstated and could be reinstated that day. Mm-hmm. We also said that we had created, uh, we had through contacts, alumni contacts, uh, talked with uh, Canada West, uh, which is the Western Conference of U Sport, which is the Canadian University Sporting uh, Hierarchy, mm-hmm. and that um, they were simply waiting for an application from Simon Fraser and would look upon it quite favorably. Um, 
and uh, we were also uh, told them that we had, and even even if that took too long, in order to establish, uh, the, get into that conference, we had, uh, uh, through our contacts again, contacted athletic directors across uh, Canada and set up a, a schedule of uh, games for this fall for Simon Fraser for the football team. So we made all those arrangements. Mm-hmm. And, and all they had to do was uh, was uh, get on board, but um, they decided not to do that. Why do you think that is? And maybe we're speculating here, but is this a cultural challenge for this administration that they don't want football? I mean, it, it, what you've laid out to me is common sense that um, no Canadian university um, uh, league is going to say we don't want we want one less team. Of course not. SFU has a fabulous reputation, uh, as you said. You can set up a, a schedule that is piecemeal, as you uh, said that uh, you and the alumni are able to do, just playing games with other um, universities across this country. You also have alumni and very high-profile supporters in the community, including the owner uh, of the BC Lions, who's also uh, uh, said, look, we're willing to support this team. Why the hesitation in your mind? Uh, Jez, I honestly don't know. Uh, This has been the question in our minds uh, since the 4th of April. We got the announcement on the same day and the same time that the players and the coaches got it. Hmm. We've been longtime stakeholders, and there's been a large number of other stakeholders as far as this program is concerned, including every team in the CFL mm-hmm. uh, who has uh, had uh, an SFU graduate on it. 217 graduates from this program have gone to the CFL more than any other school. Mm-hmm. So the stakeholders are, uh, you know, Canada-wide. None of them were consulted. None. So it came as a complete surprise. So what was the announcement? Had nothing to do with money, okay? Yep. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know we can't play in the Lone Star uh, League anymore because uh, uh, we've canceled that. You know we, we we're just not going to take a part in the second year uh, of our commitment. And, and when they went into the Lone Star uh, Conference, uh, the athletic dir- uh, director told me it was a temporary situation, two years at the most. We were looking for other conferences. That was. That was what uh, what we were told. Mm-hmm. So, okay, all right. If you want to, if you don't want to go into that conference, there's other conferences. Uh, well, um, the only answer we got was we talked to Canada West, uh, and uh, it's complicated. Uh, we've talked to Canada West, and it's not complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so I don't know. Uh, Writing something down on a piece of paper and sending it to Canada West can't be complicated. This is a university program. You'd think they'd be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, and right? it, so, goes, it goes back so to my... You know, and, and let, let me be clear. Yeah. Canada West says, we have a policy that if you're going to be a part of our program, it's all of your athletic department. So that's their policy. But they were certainly prepared to entertain an exception from Simon Fraser. And as you said in your introduction, they're very reluctant to see uh, an active football program at Simon Fraser go down. Mm-hmm. But there's been no application. So I go back to my original question. Is this a cultural challenge for this present administration that they just want to see football um, at the university anymore? 
jazz. I don't know what you mean. I'm a lawyer, but I don't know what you mean. Well, like you know, like, well, you know, there's there are those who would say, look, it's a sport that you know there's been issues of concussions. There are high schools of some along here in British Columbia have lost their football programs. Football is challenged, and it's questioned and challenged in regards to the health and safety of of, of of players at times. So that's what I mean by culture. Is it just a question of look, this is too much of a hassle for us. We don't need it. This isn't an American. No, it's not. I, I can't. I can't believe that's the case. There's been football at Simon Fraser since 1965. Mm-hmm. You know, and when the when the university opened, one of the things that it was innovative for was off was was you know above on the top of the table, above the table, offering scholarships. Yeah. And the teams that were there were swimming and football and basketball and track and field. Those were the four core sports. And uh, that's been the case um, since. So to say suddenly, well, you know, the culture now suggests that there's too many injuries, that's not, that's ridiculous. That's mm-hmm. not the case. Well, the- and, uh, and as far as concussions are concerned, uh, because of the change in coaching and the change in techniques, very rare. Yeah. What happens next now? Is it a question of just waiting for the, the administration to, for their next move, whether they say yes or no? Well, I don't, it's, it's, they've already said no. So there's, the next move is not waiting for an answer. The answer is we've terminated the program. And they've done that unilaterally without any consultation. And they've said that to you know, the Lone Star Conference, we have another year from you, we're out of here. Okay. So without any notice, even to that conference, they said we're not coming back. So they're scrambling, of course, to fill their schedule. And, uh, you know, we, uh, sure, we I, I had a discussion with the president uh, this week, uh, and she said, well, we can't go back to the Lone Star Conference. And I said, you're absolutely right, we can't. You've already burned that bridge, effectively. So I don't expect them to help welcome us back in that sense. Yeah. But, Glenn- you know, so we've put in place everything that they've said wasn't there and the reasons why they couldn't go forward. And we've taken care of that, and we've looked after it, and we've put it in place. And nothing's being done. Now, the de- and, and that's because, it's, in my view, they, they made, they've made the decision. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they're not prepared to change their mind. Glenn, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we will revisit this issue next week as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Jess. Well, today the NFL announced that it suspended five players, including four on the Detroit Lions, for violating the league's gambling policy uh, in the league's biggest crackdown since the widespread uh, proliferation of legal sports betting across the U.S. and even here in Canada. Three players were suspended indefinitely through at least 2023 for betting on NFL games uh, this past season. Uh, Two others, Lions Lions wide receiver Jamison Williams and Stanley Berryhill, received six-game bans. Now, if you've turned on a television in the United States or even here in Canada to watch live sports, you would have realized uh, how much, in fact, you can't even escape the onslaught of gambling advertising being broadcast uh, over and over again. Join me to talk a little bit about the suspensions and and, and uh, gaming when it comes to professional live sports is Scott Rintoul. He's a Vancouver broadcaster and podcaster as well. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jazz. Is this interview brought to me by any of the online sports casinos we have? I'm just... <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> not yet, but give it five minutes. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Your thoughts on this in regards to this suspension by the NFL? There's a lot here. So there are a lot of different aspects for us to pick at. So there's a couple of things. On the surface, 
suspending players for gambling, specifically in the case of three of these players. Three of them were gambling on the NFL. I think we can all understand why the league would say you can't have that. You can't have active players gambling on games in which they may potentially be able to influence the game or they may have very close contacts who can influence the line or the game itself. That makes a lot of sense to us. And whether or not you think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame or not, it's a very similar argument. Look, you are managing a team. You're not allowed to gamble on baseball because you can directly influence the game. Now, there's two other players who were suspended here, and Jamison Williams being the most high-profile of them. He's a first-round draft pick from last year, Stanley Berryhill being the other. They got six-game suspensions as opposed to the indefinite suspensions for betting on sports that weren't football, but they were in a facility, an NFL facility, when they placed the bets. Mm -hmm. That seems a little archaic. So there is the rule. Look, you can't do it. You can't be in a facility. You can't bet on a sport. You obviously can't bet on football to begin with, but you can't bet on another sport in the facility. So it's very easy to say, look, a rule is a rule. Don't break it. But it's also fair in this case to question the rule. If they walked out on the street and placed the same bet, nothing would have gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to unravel in this particular case, but and it does seem very hypocritical, at least in the case of Jamison Williams and Stanley Burial, given what you mentioned before, that the NFL is very heavily involved in promoting gambling itself. Uh, you raise a very good point as well, and that some of these pro teams do have sports books in their stadiums. The Washington National for uh, Nationals for baseball, the Phoenix Suns for the NBA, and I believe the NHL's Washington Capitals um, as well. When you look at broadcasters today, TSN's uh, parent company Bell is producing and airing its own gambling segments on TV, radio, and online. Sportsnet, um, I think, is uh, you know turning out its own multi-platform sports betting content uh, as well. Uh, is this something we're just going to have to get used to? with the arrival of single-game betting in the United States and here in Canada? Yes, absolutely. And I think most consumers, myself included, are not appalled but perhaps a little surprised at how brazen and how in-your-face a lot of the advertising and a lot of the pushing of, uh, of sports gambling has been in the past year. But it's here to stay, and you're going to have to get used to it. And I do think the broadcasters and some of the teams and leagues will have to adjust the way that they market it and maybe be a little more subtle in certain cases. But this is the gray area in between that. Now, it's very legal for these players in particular or any of us to go place an online bet as long as we're not directly influencing the outcome of a game. But these leagues seem to have jumped into this and opened Pandora's box without taking a look at each and every rule and what actually makes sense as opposed to, well, this is the way it's always been, so we'll just stick with it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, we uh, have segments here where we've uh, focused a little bit on single-game betting, and it always amazes me that even with the BC Lottery Corporation uh, for for Super Bowl, you can uh, guess you know, uh, what team will win the coin toss or um, you know who will sing first? Let's say at, a, at the at the halftime show. Like it's not just the the game itself, but it's it's a, it's action in and around the game. Like anything that you can bet on, you can bet on right down to you know uh, how long the opening speech at the Oscars might be. Like anything that they can uh, convince you to bet on, you can bet on now. No question, you can. And you look at how even sports gambling has changed in the last number of years, and in-game betting. I don't know what percentage it comprises, but it has gone up exponentially from what it used to be because 
they want your retention of their product. So in a game like last night, for example, where the Toronto Maple Leafs are thrashing the Tampa Bay Lightning, well, we know the result is pretty much a foregone conclusion. The series is going to be tied at one. But all of a sudden, the odds change on Tampa's ability to score the next goal or Toronto's ability to score a seventh time or a particular player getting a hat trick in in the case of of perhaps another game from last night. And you can continue to find a way to involve yourself in a game where maybe you wouldn't have been as interested as in the past. Yeah. I guess it's the brave new world that that I don't think anybody expected it to be this, uh, this in your face, but it it is, it's a brave new world for all of us. I think whether you're playing the, the, the sport or reporting on it, that's for sure. Scott, thank you. No, you're welcome very much. And always a pleasure, Jazz. Thank you. Well, Roy Ratnavelle was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka in 1969. At the age of 17, he became a political prisoner and spent grueling months in brutal and oppressive conditions. Uh, after his miraculous release from prison, he arrived in Canada all alone at the age of 18. His story is told in a new book called Prisoner Number 1056, How I Survived War and Found Peace. Roy Ratnavelle joins us now. Roy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for having me. It's uh, Vancouver. It used to be my hometown for 20 years. Now I live in Toronto, so I'm so glad to talk to you on a Friday. Yeah, we're so lucky to have you and to, to chat with you in regards to your incredible story. First of all, um, when did you come to the decision? And, and explain your decision and your thinking in regards to why you wanted to write this book. Yeah, okay. So I have some sort of three reasons why I wanted to write this book. One, to tell the world about the trauma and the torture of a teenage boy uh, who was sent to prison at the age of 17. Then I wanted to give a voice to the next generation of Tamils who are coming of age in this country to tell their story or their parents' story of flooding Sri Lanka or leaving behind a horrific war. But mostly and mainly, um, at the end of the day, I wanted to tell a story about and give a homage to Canada for being the beacon of hope and and a land of freedom and fairness to tell the Canadians here who are either been many generations in this country or new to this country to say, we must cherish our freedom and democratic rights. We must protect it, enhance it. And when we leave this planet or Canada, we should leave it behind better than we have found it. Now, at the age of 17, as I said in the intro, you became a political prisoner. Uh, speak to me how that happened and explain a little bit about the conditions that led you to being a prisoner. Sure. Just to give the listeners a bit of a uh, background on, on where Sri Lanka is and what happened, Sri Lanka is an island nation, the southern tip of India. It's, a, it's an independent nation, uh, but not up until 1948. It was part of the... Um, a British, a British uh, colony uh, until 1948, got its freedom, and then became a country of its own. And um, when... Oh, Roy, did we lose you? Oh, I think... Can you we, hear me? Yeah, I, we, can, just can you hear? The, we just lost you there uh, yeah, for a minute. Something weird happened there. <laughs> I just kind of... Uh, I didn't hear anything. Sorry, so... Uh, just let me go back here. So the country was uh, basically uh, got its independence in 1948. And then uh, there was um, the, the majority ruled the country after that, because in a democratic setting, the majority rules. The, so Tamils are the minority, predominantly Hindus, and I am a Tamil. And Sinhalese are the majority um, 
predominantly British. Mm -hmm. And the first prime minister of the country um, basically enacted discriminatory laws that would over time make the Tamil's economic uh, opportunities uh, non-existent. So that led to a uh, a riot in 1983 called the July Black Riot, uh, race riot, that killed more than 3,000 Tamils, which made millions of people to flood the country, and the war began. At that time, I was living in the North in 1987, the, the uh, Operation Liberation, which was an operation conducted by the Sri Lankan Army. I was rounded up for only reason for being a Tamil at the age of 17 and sent to prison, where I was held for more than two months. And as you mentioned in the uh, in your intro, miraculously, I was able to escape after facing uh, torture and uh, harsh conditions. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you, you you got back home. How did you leave? End up leaving your homeland. So when I came out of prison, my father decided that there's no future for a young Tamil boy like me, and thought maybe Canada might be the land of opportunity, and sent me away for safety and hopefully prosperity. So how right he was in his assessment. Uh, and you lost your father too, not too, too, not, not too long after that, right? Yeah, I landed here on the 19th of April, uh, 1988, 35 years ago. Ironically, I'm talking to you exactly the same day. Uh, on April 21st, two days after I landed here, he was killed. Uh, so this is, today is his 35th death anniversary, I'm talking to you and telling the story. Mm-hmm. I think that it is symbolic that I'm actually having this conversation. Yeah, I think the, you know, after my father's death, untimely death, it left me with the feeling that maybe if I did well enough in life, uh, somehow I could make up for the life he should have had. And so I basically put everything into that. I took his pain of death as the core for furnace of my ambition and just wanted to live his legacy, and I'm so glad I did that. And the only way I was able to do that is a country like Canada, because it gave me the 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 opportunity to have those uh, um, um, chances. And uh, and I truly believe that freedom and choice are the only two things a human being should be guaranteed, and the rest is up to them to take the best of it. So you arrive in Canada, a young man, fifty dollars in your pocket. Uh, what were your impressions? How do you? Uh, where do you find housing? How do you build a career? Like, what was going through your mind at such a young age? Yeah, no, obviously that was um, it's, it's hard for anyone, and especially for a young boy who never ever left the, the, his homeland. But to be fair, I had an uncle here who was uh, a very very loving uncle and supportive. I knew he was here. Worst case scenario, I can at least. Um, get his help but uh, he was also new to this country he was only here for uh, a year or so so he had his own challenges so I had to kind of fend for myself and the first thing I did was uh, just like any immigrant would do um, just get some jobs and so with the lack of um, with the lack of uh, the lack of opportunity uh, or experience, I was able to only get jobs, odd jobs, right? Like factories and security mm-hmm. guards and cleaning buildings. And, and I just realized at some point I had to get out of this and start figuring out a way to get some serious uh, um, career. And so I applied for a job called, uh, it's a, I basically it's an office help a mailroom. In 1989, a year after I came, and, uh, and it was a small investment firm on Bay Street, and uh, I joined the mailroom and 35 years later, I'm the executive and the head of Canadian operation. That is quite the story. Uh, and as you mentioned at the beginning of our interview, uh, you uh, spent a lot of time here in Vancouver. How did you end up in our city for a while? 
Yeah, so they say go west, young man. Very thoughtful <laughs> opportunity. So I, uh, I was living here in Toronto. I came in 88, 98. Um, I had an opportunity to come out to Vancouver and uh, for, as a, um, the VP of sales for my investment firm that I'm still working at. And I, yeah, I came in. I remember my first uh, place is Yale Town on Pacific Boulevard there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked at the Scotiabank building, and that's where my old office was. And uh, it's kind of triggered my memory when, when, when you guys said you're in Pacific Center. I, I, I basically frequent that mall many times. So, yeah, <laughs> that's what brought me there. And uh, I spent 18 years um, in Vancouver and had made many friends. And this is another reason I wrote the book, because uh, – it gave me a unique opportunity to travel across Western Canada from Winnipeg all the way to Victoria and mm-hmm. small towns. And I, I really had a great time talking to Canadians from small towns and big towns. And uh, that is sort of one of the reasons I wrote the book, because just to give the beauty of this country and everywhere I went, I had amazing friends, amazing clients. And, uh, and I just realized that there's only one thing that, that connects hum- humanity. It's just really if you look beyond our differences, there's amazing things we can do. And I think this country stands as a testament to that, that statement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring up in the book. So if you think about this book in one way, it's not really about some teenage boy suffered and came here and made a living for himself, which is in itself is a great story. And it's many, there are many stories like that. But I wanted to sort of say, what is the third act? What's the message here? The message is that sometimes I always say that when you're born into something that you don't really appreciate it, there's a sense of complacency. And I do believe that freedom is easy to uh, denounce freedom and it's hard to acquire it. And I think of my message in the book at the end of chapters really talks about how as Canadians, we should really be on alert for really defending our uh, our individual freedoms and democratic rights as, as people. Because if you just ignore that, then you end up getting Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been able to go back to your homeland to visit? I was able to go back in 2002 during the peace talks uh, before the war broke out again, just one time to go back and just emotionally connect with where my father was killed and, and try to put that behind me. And so that was a sort of therapeutic trip I went down to. And then in later in 2010, after the war, um, uh, I was put on a list of people who cannot enter the country uh, since so I never had the chance to go back again. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you do uh, want to get to go back. And, and I just wanted to say uh, it's a fabulous book. It's called Prisoner Number Ten Fifty Six: How I Survived War and Found Peace. And um, uh, Roy, your story is incredibly inspiring. To to arrive in Canada with fifty dollars in your pocket is a story enough. But to as a seventeen year old be thrown in jail and to go through torture and uh, to make something of yourself to the point where you're a senior executive now at a, at a major asset company here uh, in Canada. Um, you re- represent and reflect everything that is uh, wonderful about this country. So thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jazz. Have a great weekend. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.